And when um, you know the crags are getting busier, there is an overcrowding issue at a lot of popular crags, especially here in the Front Range. And so, um, you know, if we all do a little bit uh, uh, and and do our part, you know, it, it gets better for all of us in the long term. Uh, and so, I totally agree with you. I think this is an opportunity for all of us to kind of reset a little bit uh, and use this as a chance to really um, think hard about what it means to be a responsible climber and a part of the community. Welcome to the Stokecast, where each week we bring you an inspiring athlete, adventurer, or entrepreneur and dig into their stories and strategies for building and trying to balance work, life, adventure, and impact. I'm Jonathan Ronzio. And I'm Emily Holland. Thanks for joining us today. Welcome to the Stokecast. I'm Jonathan Ronzio. I'm here with my co-host, Emily Holland. And uh, Emily, who are we chatting with today? Well, Jonathan, we are chatting with Chris Winter. Chris Winter is um, the executive director of the Access Fund. The Access Fund is an incredible organization. It focuses a lot on protecting our climbing areas, buying climbing areas, um, developing them. And Chris is trained as an environmental lawyer, which is pretty incredible. Um, he's a big climber, big conservationist, and he was just an incredible person to talk to and really hear how um, the Access Fund and other nonprofits are, are challenged right now, but also, you know, continuing to push through and help to support the conservation of our recreational areas. So, it was a great conversation with Chris. Yeah, yeah. So tune in now. Uh, we're really excited for you to check out this story and learn a little bit more about how, uh, as climbers, as our community, we can think about returning to the outdoors and how we can can recreate and and really begin climbing again in in a big meaningful way. Okay, Chris. Thanks for joining the Stokecast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Of course, we're really excited to chat with you. I know you are. Uh, also in Boulder, uh, I don't know how far away you are from Emily right now. <laughs> I don't Seems think we need like, to uh, divulge just, our addresses. <laughs> I'm just as far away from Emily as I am from every other person in the country right now. It seems like this is a way we communicate these days. Yeah, that's true. Very true. Yeah. Um, so, I, well, with that prompt, I guess, let's get right into it. I'm, I'm curious, you know, with, with regards to the Access Fund, uh, yeah. And just how climbers should be kind of thinking about this environment right now. Of course, like the the climbing gyms are closed, but also we need to be more mindful than ever about the outdoors and our impact there and how we're congregating and what spaces we're using. So I'd love to get your perspective, from, you know, personally, but also from the organization, how you're kind of handling this this situation. Yeah, man, it's been a pretty interesting uh, last several weeks here, especially for the climbing community and outdoor recreation in general. Um, there's so much to talk about, but, uh, you know, a couple things that come to mind um, quickly is that uh, for climbers, I think we've really come to appreciate access to the outdoors as we've been forced to um, stay inside for five or six weeks during the prime climbing season in the spring. It's been really hard for folks to stay home. It's also been really important for us to do our part to prevent the spread of COVID-19 and help flatten the curve. Uh, and so it's been this really interesting um, mental process for us where we're just itching to go outside and we're really trying hard to do the right thing to stay home. And so I think for us climbers, we're just really excited on the sport right now and uh, looking forward to the time when we can go back outside and see our friends and start climbing again. So for the most part, I think we've all just come away from this 
um, reinvigorated our love for the sport and uh, even more appreciative of everything that it offers to us. So I, I'm curious, like, has this affected your personal habits? Like, are you a big climber? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, obviously I climb all the time. Um, I haven't climbed since I think March 17th or 18th or something like that. So have been uh, here in my house in the foothills outside Boulder that whole time trying to work out at home uh, and obviously working hard for the access fund. But, um, you know, I'm lucky in that I live somewhere where I can walk out my back door and go for a nice long hike uh, and explore a bunch of really cool spots. So that's a privilege. I really appreciate it. But I have definitely not been climbing outside this whole time. So it's been pretty hard. And what's what's like the access fund stance on like best practices as far as the the you know, cause I, I think there's no doubt there are some people still getting out there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, um, this whole thing kind of, um, happened, uh, really quickly in uh, late February, early March. And the first wave of response I think was really to just encourage people in gateway communities to, um, go home places like Moab, Utah, Bishop, California. Um, we're just dealing with an inundation of people on spring break uh, and I think the um, the virus magnified the number of people because folks had uh, more time to travel and they were just stoked to get out. Uh, and so we really worked hard with local climbing organizations and climbers in those communities to encourage people to go home and protect the vulnerable communities. That worked really well, and uh, the climbing community really stepped up uh, and did its best to protect those places. And then it was really about just encouraging people to stay home and um, – to stay stoked on climbing while they're in their house. And so it was cool to see all the gym sharing out workout videos, people sharing out funny photos of them climbing in their kitchens and whatnot. And we hope to reshare some of that stuff. Uh, and now we're really starting to look at what it means to go back outside and start climbing again as places around the country start to reopen. So just earlier this week, we published some information for the climbing community on things to think about best practices when we do get the opportunity to go outside. And, and I think the most important thing is for everyone to still stay at home if that's what their local jurisdictions want them to do. Uh, but when it is okay, according to what the government says, to start um, you know, dipping your toe into the water and going back out to the crag, I think there's some pretty easy things folks can do. Yeah. It, I think the coolest thing to, to, you know, to always focus on a silver lining, the coolest thing that has come out of this uh, quarantine has been the creativity um, that we've been seeing across the board, across social, like everything that people are doing. And it's, it's wild to see, you know, these videos of people, um, climbing around their kitchen, uh, on the cabinets and like bolting their brick walls on the side of the house. Uh, it's, it's just so fun. But in, in regards to, I guess, like the, the return, um, yeah. I, th I think that's a, a really good thing to, to kind of highlight right now and kind of dig into some of that info that you just put out. Um, because, you know, when this episode drops here in, in a few weeks or a month or whatever it's going to be, I think that hopefully we're getting closer to that point where where people are starting to, to get outside again and are starting to gather in, uh, you know, more meaningful ways, but not large groups and uh, and understanding the best way to approach that transition, because I think there's a lot of fear around that right now. Yeah. And um, just the same way that there was fear in, in like, how are we going to cope with with staying inside and what does this mean for, for business and work and, and climbing and all of that, right? Like what, what does the, the transition plan look like? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, we're not going to return to normal right away. Uh, and I don't know what normal is going to look like even in the long term as we get towards the back end of this thing. 
So um, it is going to be really important for first of us, first of all, all of us, I think, to just keep a really open mind about what it means to go back outside, go to the crag, and go climbing again after we um, get through this. It's not going to be the same. Uh, and so there's all kinds of different climbers. People have different practices or into different things. Um, but we really tried to get out some information geared towards folks that are going to popular crags that tend to get busy on the weekends. And I think there are a lot of basic things we can do. I mean, it's really all about um, social distancing. This is what the CDC is telling us and the government's telling us is that the best tool we have as individuals to prevent the spread and to do our part is to just basically keep our distance from other people so we don't accidentally spread the virus. Uh, and that goes for all of us when we're at the crag as well as when we're in towns and cities and bars and restaurants. And so a lot of what the um, CDC is telling us and what we translated into climbers was basically just how to avoid um, accidentally spreading the virus. And so, for instance, climb with one person most of the time. Climb with the person you live with. Climb with your roommate. Um, climb with your uh, steady climbing partner. But you know, don't go out climbing with a whole bunch of different people. Um, travel in small groups. So don't go climbing in large groups, which um, some folks like to do. Uh, and then I think there's some best practices at the crags. So, you know, if you um, have the flexibility, don't go to busy crags. Don't go out at the peak times on the weekends. Try to spread ourselves out a little bit more than maybe we're used to. Explore some new areas that are maybe off the radar a little bit. Uh, and if you are going out to busy places on the weekends, you know, don't be that person that shows up uh, to a busy crag midday. Uh, somebody maybe has their partner on belay and, and is, um, given an attentive belay, like don't walk up and drop your stuff right next to them. Like you might've done otherwise, um, because everybody's going to have their own, uh, risk tolerance levels as we get towards the back end of this. And, you know, if somebody's got their partner on belay, they don't really have the option of moving out of the way or trying right. to keep six feet distance between the person that just walked up and is standing right next to them. So we just have to be especially considerate of everybody else. We have to be nice to each other. We have to really go the extra yard towards um, keeping an open mind and just realizing that everybody's going to react to this differently. And so we just really have to be careful and considerate of each other when we're out of the crag. It's, it's so interesting because, I mean, the, the fact is that it, it was almost like feeling like we were getting to a point of there, there was some unrest and frustration before this all happened of the popularity, growing and growing popularity of climbing in a lot of yeah. the places where we have all these like Boulder, that there's so much climbing here and there's so many people at the crags <clears> all the time. Um, it's almost as if, you know, a lot of these practices that you just rattled off that are super important for the minimization of this virus are actually going to help us um, be more respectful, you know, rock climbers to each other as well. So it, it just kind of um, hopefully again with a silver lining that will help us to get back to a more like respectful usage of the different climbing areas that we're, we're going to. Yeah, Emily, I totally agree. Um, you know, at the access fund, we've been, um, promoting a set of kind of best practices for a number of years called the climbers pact. And it's really just about how climbers can, um, agree to respect each other, respect the places we go and uh, make that whole experience for all of us a little bit better. <clears throat> and when, um, you know, the crags are getting busier, there is an overcrowding issue at a lot of popular crags, especially here in the front range. And so, um, you know, if we all do a little bit uh, uh, and, and do our part, you know, it, it gets better for all of us in the long term. 
and so I totally agree with you. I think this is an opportunity for all of us to kind of reset a little bit uh, and use this as a chance to really um, think hard about what it means to be a responsible climber and a part of the community. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering from your perspective, um, you know, it's almost like a lot of people feel like now, especially you don't know what you have until it's taken away from you. Right. Yeah. So um, I, I wonder if you'll see or if you have a perspective on how you feel like people will um, uh, feel towards their you know, public lands and towards their crags and towards the natural world around us now that we haven't really been able to experience and it's, it was kind of like ripped away from a lot of us. Do you feel like there will be um, a greater involvement in these sort of conservation um, and natural efforts? Yeah, I, I mean, I, sorry, you're cutting out there a little bit, Emily. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely feel that um, at the Access Fund. We have felt that people have been uh, supporting the Access Fund consistently throughout all of this. And I think a lot of that is because we are um, preserving those special places we all love to enjoy, public lands um, and crags, and access is such a huge issue. Uh, and so I definitely expect that there's going to be a strong interest in conservation, stewardship, and access as we go towards the back end of this whole experience um, and I think that means that we have to do a really good job as an outdoor recreation community in talking about those issues responsibly. We have to share out the stoke about what it means to be outside and how cool it is for, for folks to have that opportunity. And then we have to really, I think, um, emphasize the importance of stewardship and conservation and what it means to be responsible outdoor recreational users and climbers. Uh, and there's a whole lot of opportunity in conservation and stewardship, both to help in the economic recovery creating jobs on the back end of this, um, partnering up with land managers, and really helping our gateway and rural communities recover. Uh, so there's a lot of really good things that can come out of this. I think one, one thing that might be interesting to, to think or talk about is like, you know, as much as we like to think that most people will be mindful or selfless, I think it's also um, just a fact that like people want to have their experience. They want to have their climb, yeah. their outdoors, right? And so... I think that uh, unfortunately more people than not will show up to a crag and not be willing to walk away, even if it's crowded, because they went through the effort to get there. They're stoked to climb. They want to climb. And, and that, you know, I, I think that that's just like that kind of crowding is going to be in a way unavoidable. And in the aftermath of a, <clears throat> of a pandemic like this, like, do you see some of these public places starting to put some more restrictions in the same way that maybe national parks do where there's permitting systems to like measure, you know, to, to limit how many people can go up half dome, right. To like limit how many people can climb that crag that day. Like, are we going to see more bureaucracy? I think there's definitely a risk of that. And so we've been trying to talk about that a little bit, but you know, one of the things we did at the access fund when this all started is we started tracking all of the closures around the country that were being implemented by land managers uh, and we tracked that all on the website and shared it out to the climbing community. And I think there was uh, over 100 closures all over the country. And those were small crags uh, owned and operated by private landowners or even local climbing organizations, all the way up to closures that affected entire national forests, hundreds of thousands of acres. So we're going to track the reopening process as well. But what we're hearing from land managers is that they are thinking about whether they need to implement restrictions moving forward, uh, new restrictions that weren't in place before. And so um, while it's really important to be uh, mindful of everyone when you're out there just because it's the right thing to do, uh, it's also super important to realize that we do stand to potentially lose access. 
as a result of this experience. And if we don't step up and take it on ourselves to self-regulate uh, and, to, and to do the right thing as a community, then the land managers may very well step in in different places and force us to um, live under a new system of regulation and restrictions. So we're trying really hard to prevent that from happening, um, but we need the community to step up and rally uh, in order to help us out. Yeah, I mean, that's a great call to action right there. So everyone that's listening, that's a climber. Um, think about that when you're thinking about how you're going to recreate um, around climbing moving forward. <laughs> because if you don't do well, um, the government come, or those agencies might come in and, and restrict you from where you want to go. So <laughs> yeah, it's a tricky dance, you know, because the, the, the flip side of this is that, uh, especially here in the front range, um, the land managers have really, um, I think, uh, been committed to keeping access open through this experience because they know it's such a core part of the identity of living in Colorado and being a climber or being a hiker and mountain biker. And so um, unlike other places in the country or unlike places in Europe, for instance, outdoor recreation has been a core part of the strategy to help us all get through this. Uh, and we've enjoyed uh, access to the outdoors here in Colorado and places that we haven't. And so that um, has been um, – fortunate for us to have that opportunity but it's also been super confusing for climbers because then they're getting mixed messages um from the you know social media don't go outside stay home but then the land manager is like well you could actually go climbing if you want to just be careful so it's been really confusing for folks and i just think we need to understand that it's it's okay to be confused because it's been super confusing um and that's all right but we just need to make sure that as we're moving forward it's really important to avoid overcrowding to be nice to each other uh, to try to find some consensus in the community and just do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen a lot of, um, and had some conflicting feelings when I, you know, drive through Boulder Canyon and see people up on some of the crags up there, or I was in El Dorado Springs in, in Boulder, just walking around doing a little hike and saw some people climbing there. And, you know, even from a personal perspective, I have a, a, a gut reaction of, well, why are they climbing? You know, almost like a little bit of jealousy, right? And there's almost a bit of, uh, seemingly like a bit of shaming almost that we see online and that we see sometimes in person that people get pretty pissed off if they feel like they can't climb, but other people aren't doing the same level of um, social distancing and stuff. And so I think that what you mentioned about, you know, being kind to one another, I, I feel like that's a consistent reminder that I have to give to myself. And I think it was helpful for others, especially because there will probably be, you know, another wave of this at some point that we're going to need to to work through, right? I think so. I think there is going to be a second wave at some point. Um, and, you know, we're really encouraging folks to think about what we can do to prevent that as much as possible. Um, and, you know, Emily, I, I, I feel the same way. I mean, I haven't climbed in quite a while. I was just telling, you know, Jonathan earlier that once this all started in mid-March, you know, I pretty much locked myself in my house here in the foothills outside Boulder and didn't go climbing at all uh, for a long, long time. I mean, it's like I'm still not climbing. And it's really hard to see uh, other people out climbing. But part of that is because of my own health risk. Part of that is doing the right thing for the community as a whole. And, and part of that's in solidarity with all the folks that are making the same decision. So um, it's a personal thing. And I try really hard to keep that in the back of my mind that everybody's going to make their own decisions through this and just trying to stay positive and sharing out you know, reasons why I or others might, might decide to stay home. But um, you know, the tough part is, is that uh, if we're successful 
in social distancing and the lockdown, it looks like nothing really happened. Uh, and so that's a, a strange dynamic, but it's, it's something that's important to keep in the forefront of our minds. And that, that goes for the second and third wave as well. If we're successful in preventing the second and third wave, you know, we're going to dial back our activities and it's going to look like we did that for nothing. Uh, and in the long run, it's true. Nothing will happen, hopefully. But that's because we all made the right decision. Yeah, it's it's like <clears throat> really the time for everybody to just get a hangboard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, exactly. And just work work on the uh, the core skills there. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I I'm curious as as climbers start to come back, uh, you know, into the outdoors and are potentially trying to avoid the crowded spaces and venturing a little further, maybe off the grid or into more unknown places to discover um, new crags. Like, how how does Access Fund kind of think about Think about uh, like opening up new areas or mm-hmm. uh, or fostering the the conscious development of new recreation areas as people begin to expand away from the more popular places. Yeah, so I mean that's a long term question, and at the Access Fund, we're doing a lot of things to try to um, increase the amount of climbing opportunities for people around the country. So one of the really cool things we do is actually uh, buy threatened climbing areas. Uh, so we're accredited as a land trust. And we have this revolving loan fund, you know, that's probably somewhere around $1.7 million or so, $1.5 million. And so we'll actually partner up with local climbing organizations around the country, loan them the money to go and buy a really cool crag or a potentially a new crag. And then, um, and then they can repay that loan over time uh, at zero interest or low interest rates. And then we also have a bunch of trail teams, three trail teams that live on the road 10 months a year. And so we'll also then send our trail teams in. Uh, and they can help build sustainable trails and belay platforms and landing zones uh, when these local climbing organizations find a new crag. Uh, and so we've used that model really successfully and had a couple really cool projects around the country. Uh, the most recent one is Hanging Mountain uh, in Western Mass, where we um, help the locals you know, buy a really, really cool crag. Uh, there's potential for a couple hundred routes there, two or three pitches long, um, really high-quality rock. And, uh, you know, parking and trails and belay stations and all that's going to be built in from the very beginning of how this thing is designed to open up. And so um, it's time intensive. It's project by project and it's over the long term. Um, But with this revolving loan fund, you know, in the last 10 years or so, we've um, done about 28 transactions um, and opened up just a ton of climbing for folks and helped to preserve a bunch of climbing. So it's something we're, we're committed to over the long term is um, over time in that way, um, opening up climbing around the country. I'm interested to hear your perspective, Chris. I know we kind of touched on it before the, the, uh, growing popularity of climbing, which, you know, there's, there's a lot of discussion around like the, um, the good sides of that and the bad sides of that. And obviously like the increase, um, level of access that the access yeah. fund is is bringing to the table um, allows for more people to go to different areas and and stuff like that or spread out a little bit more depending on you know um, what what the situation is but I'm just wondering in your perspective you know um, is the growing popularity of the climbing community a good thing and maybe if you have any sort of like nuanced opinions about that yeah. I mean, I think it's a great thing. I think climbing is such a fantastic sport. Um, we get so much out of it personally. Um, so many climbers you talk to, if you just sit down and have a beer with them or something and ask them to reflect back on where they'd be if they hadn't found climbing, uh, you know, you get a lot of responses, but pretty much universally, everyone's like, man, I'm so thankful that I found climbing when I did. And there's so many cool stories. 
Uh, and so if you think about that on a large scale and what it means for more and more people to have access to that kind of opportunity, it's really a great thing. Um, we also know that it's good for rural economic development because these places are often in rural communities and a lot of places have benefited a lot from the development of climbing in those, in those locations. Um, and this is especially true in places like Appalachia and the Southeast where they really need economic opportunities as they're moving away from coal and other types of extractive industries. So the economic benefits are really important. Uh, we know it's good for public health to get people outside. Uh, so people really come away from that uh, healthier, happier, and more productive. Uh, and at the Access Fund, you know, we're also really excited about the opportunity to get people um, turned on to climbing and then to help them see the connection between climbing and conservation and stewardship. Uh, and so all those new climbers, uh, in our mind, are also new advocates to protect public lands, to protect wild places, and to help chip in uh, and contribute to stewarding those places as well. And so it presents a challenge, but in the big picture, the growth of climbing is a really good thing overall for our community and for the outdoor industry and the places that we like to go climb. What's, what's the easiest way for a, cl a climber to turn into a conservationist? I mean, the easiest way, there's a couple things. One, of course, is to become a member of the Access Fund, accessfund.org. But, um, you know, we also share out tons of resources on an ongoing basis just about access threats, um, but also conservation of public lands, stewardship opportunities. And so just um, stay up to date on what the Access Fund is putting out over our website and social media because it's really some of the best content out there on that connection between climbing and outdoor recreation and conservation. Uh, so that's an easy thing to do. Um, the other thing is that, you know, we work with an, uh, as an umbrella organization for 140 local climbing organizations all over the country. These are independent nonprofits usually that are working in the local community led by local climbers. And they're also digging in deep on conservation and stewardship, and they're doing incredible work. So the other thing folks can do is to find out, you know, what is the local climbing organization that's active in your community and uh, get to know those folks. They're, they're amazing people and they're super passionate and they got a lot of inspirational stories. So, you know, here in the front range, there's folks like the Boulder Climbing Community. Um, they're doing really amazing work, Salt Lake Climbers Alliance and Salt Lake City. Um, but there's, you know, the Western Colorado Climbers Coalition. There's people all over the country that are doing this work. We have an army of advocates uh, and passionate people. So that's the other fo thing folks can do is plug in with the LCOs. That's awesome. Well, I, I want to like know what, what issues are keeping you and the access fund up at night, but <laughs> before we get there, let's let that one stew a little bit. Maybe let's yeah. take a step back and understand like your path to executive director at access yeah. fund, right? Like what, what was, uh, how did you get involved in this? Like what, what, what did your professional life and passions, uh, look like to, to draw you to where you are now? Yeah, well, I mean, professionally, um, I've been an environmental attorney before taking the job with the Access Fund. I worked as an environmental attorney for about 20 years, uh, worked with a nonprofit that I started in Portland, Oregon for most of that time, about 18 years. And, um, you know, the work that we did there was really about protecting public lands. We did a lot of climate change work, but all of it was conservation oriented for other nonprofit organizations and spent a lot of time in federal court, state court. Um, all uh, phases of the litigation process, really just trying to figure out how best to protect public lands and our natural resources uh, as a lawyer. And so I did that for a super long time uh, and had been a climber the entire time as well. So when this job opportunity came up at the Access Fund, it was really a perfect fit for me 
uh, and I'm really excited about it. So I've been in the role for, I don't know, 16, 17 months. So it's still relatively new uh, and getting settled in here into Boulder, Colorado, as well as a, as a new transplant. But um, yeah, so I just came to it as, as an environmental attorney uh, and a passionate climber for that, for that whole time. Um, and what made you want to go into environmental law to begin with? I mean, did you grow up in a family that was very, you know, focused on the outdoors? Like what, what prompted that interest um, in you? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely like a lot of people, I think, who get into conservation. I think you just get the bug as a kid uh, if your folks are taking you outside. And I was just super lucky. I grew up in Seattle um, in the 70s. My dad was a climber. Uh, in the Pacific Northwest, and he knew a bunch of really amazing climbers as well. Uh, and so I was just um, always hearing stories, seeing photos of trip trips of people going to the Himalayas and coming back with amazing, amazing stories. Um, and so I just lived outside with my dad and my family. Um, and that, I think, from the very beginning, um, just instilled in me the sense of how important these places are and how amazing it is to have the opportunity to be outside. And so when I did find myself, you know, getting through high school and college and thinking about what I wanted to do in life, um, I really just naturally gravitated back towards the outdoors and wanted to do something uh, to protect those places. So it really all did tie back to my experiences as a little kid. I just love these stories. Sometimes we have guests like like yourself who have <laughs> parents in the you know seventies uh, and eighties that were already climbers during that yeah. time, and I'm like, they weren't in Valley Uprising, but they were doing this before you know before <laughs> before a lot of people were. And I'm just always so amazed at that kind of level of um, individualism that I, you know I was never exposed to that kind of stuff when I was growing up, and um, I, I just love that there's these kind of pockets of stories, but. The other thing I had mentioned, too, is I noticed that you went to Cornell and I went to Ithaca. So we have some crossover um, of Western New York. um, And what a natural, beautiful place that is in its own right. Man, Ithaca is a beautiful place. Um, It's an amazing, amazing spot. Uh, I had such a great time at Cornell. I felt so lucky to just have such a beautiful campus to spend time on. Um, And actually, my dad grew up in Ithaca as well. Um, oh, I wow. lived there for a while. So I've been going to, going to Ithaca since I was, you know, a newborn kid and just love that place so much. It's amazing. And, um, had an opportunity to take my wife there a couple of years ago for the first time. And, uh, she went to university of New Hampshire, uh, and I had been telling her about how beautiful the uh, campus was at Cornell. And she's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, you <laughs> had, a, had a really nice campus as well. Um, and she got there and I think, you know, the first thing I did was took her up on the campus to see the gorges, uh, look over, yeah. uh, downtown, down onto the lake from up on the hill and, you know, just have a hundred foot gorge right there to look down into. And she's like, yep, this is pretty darn nice. It's a pretty cool <laughs> spot. Yeah. It's such a little, a bubble of, uh, beauty over there. It's, it's amazing. So I, I had to call that out because I knew it. So, um, <laughs> But I think what I'd love to hear from you, I mean, I know you're hearing these stories from your dad and then obviously he was bringing you outdoors. But like you mentioned before, you know, sitting around the campfire, hearing everyone's stories of of where they first were when they had that moment of like climbing Stoke. You know, do you yeah. remember the moment that you had that experience that you could share with us? Oh, sure. I definitely remember it. I mean, I think um, so I came to climbing a little bit later in life. But I mean, when I was when I was a kid. Um, I was skiing all the time. So that was my thing as a kid is, is just skiing constantly. Um, I got into climbing a little bit later in life 
And, uh, you know, I think the first time I led a, a pitch outside um, was, you know, sport climbing, some easy pitch at Smith Rock way back in the day. And, man, after that, I clipped those first couple bolts and I was on lead. I mean, I was so jazzed. Uh, it just all <laughs> fell into place and clicked right away. Uh, and so in my mind, yeah, that, that, that first lead, just I knew that was going to stick with me for forever and I was hooked. Uh, and so that, that for sure was the start. And then on and the Smith Rock, yeah, yeah. So on beautiful. the other side of the coin, you're like, you, you find that connection to to climbing, and then you're like, but yep. I also want to be a lawyer, right? And yeah, I, I always find that such an interesting dichotomy because I think that there's a, um, in, in at least in most uh, people's experience, there there's a positive correlation between those who are drawn to the outdoors and outdoor adventure sports and uh, the freedom that that provides. Right. And yep. and the inability to thrive in a traditional corporate kind of structured I- environment. Right. Like I think outdoorsy yep. folks are more more in line with like more creative or entrepreneurial careers generally. And and so like I always think it's interesting to, to find people that are are both so driven by the outdoors and the freedom and, and that creativity and the rocks and the wild places. Right. But then also operating you know in such a structured environment in the sense of like the the legal practice right in your case yeah yeah you know it's it's interesting because i came out of law school in uh, 1998 and got a job in a big private firm in portland oregon and did that for you know about three years and was practicing environmental law there as a really young law student i mean i think i got out of law school when i was like 26 or something like that so i was super young went pretty much straight through and was definitely when I got there, you know, I was excited to, to learn and to work, but I really quickly realized that like I'm not going to survive in this big corporate law firm. I really want to go out and do something that's um, geared towards conservation and protecting these wild places that I've enjoyed so much. Um, I was really young, so I didn't really know how to do that. But my buddy and I just took a flyer and basically quit together from this big private law firm and started a nonprofit so that we could try to be lawyers for other conservation groups. Uh, and so we tried to just make it work, lived off a shoestring budget for a super long time and just was going to court and litigating for these tiny nonprofits all over the Pacific Northwest. So um, that's how I did it. I mean, I basically just fully committed to um, you know, a pretty uh, limited lifestyle where I was focused on starting this nonprofit and climbing as much as possible on the side. Um, and over time, you know, it was like climbing always had kind of had to take a back seat to the job. Um, but I also, you know, kind of imposed on my coworkers and took a lot of time off as well and, and tried to spend as much time climbing as possible and traveling. So, um, it was a really interesting journey over 18 years watching, um, how it all developed. And, and I got in a lot of climbing and did a lot of cool work. So I'm really thankful that it worked out that way. I just love the image of like coming home from the crag, you know, or like from living in a van for a little while and then putting on a suit and going into a courtroom. I, I just I love yeah. the image of that transition. Um, that's amazing. So how then in, in – so that was the Crag Law Center, right? Yeah. Is that right? Great yep. name also. Um, <laughs> but can, can I – But I don't. before we move on from that, can I just ask how – how long the transition was but between you quitting that job and and like actually having a sustainable kind of like work balance right like you you quit and then yeah. the, the process of starting a nonprofit which is hard enough as it is and nonprofits don't are, are not like known for making a lot of money and being a very lucrative 
career oftentimes. So like to yep. say, I quit, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, <laughs> like what was the, the timeline there to actually get things up and running and the, and the process of starting that? It, I mean, we certainly didn't make a lot of money, but um, so we quit. Uh, and then actually I, I flew to, um, to Nairobi, Kenya right after I quit and traveled in uh, sub-Saharan Africa for three months uh, with my girlfriend who later became my wife. Uh, so that was quite the adventure traveling overland in Africa for three months and then came back and, uh, the buddy that I had uh, started this nonprofit with or was planning to start it with, you know, had, had worked through that whole thing. So I was lucky to get some time to drop out for a while. Uh, but then we came back and we, and we launched this thing, got it running. Uh, you know, and I think we probably didn't make any money at all for like six months, uh, and just managed to scrape by and then slowly, you know, it started to pick up a little bit of steam here and there. But I mean, we weren't really like making a living that we could, you know, comfortably exist off of for, um, I don't know, like a year and a half or two years or something like that. And, you know, the typical cycle of a startup is after five years, it's like, you kind of know if it's going to work or not. Um, and that was true for us too. After five years, like we had a lot of momentum and we knew this thing was going to fly, but you know, it was pretty touch and go there for quite a while. So it was, it was an adventure in more ways than one. Was there ever a moment or maybe a few moments where you were in that first year and a half, two years where you're like, was this a good idea that we did this? Um, <laughs> what's going on here? Was there any moments of doubts and, and how did you work through those? I mean, there was definitely moments of doubt. Um, you know, I was 28 or 29 years old um, and we were going into federal court uh, as really young attorneys by ourselves with no, uh, no, you know, mentors really by our side, trying to challenge old growth logging projects, um, large land deals, um, all kinds of things, uh, and facing off against way more experienced attorneys on the other side in front of judges that have been sitting on the bench uh, in federal court in Portland for 20, 30 years. I mean, these are icons of the legal community uh, in the Pacific Northwest. So we felt way in over our heads. Uh, was really scary, and it, and it motivated us to do absolutely the best job possible, uh, calling everybody we could to get advice, you know, you name it. But uh, we took it really seriously because we were super scared of screwing up, uh, and we were really passionate about doing a good job. So, I mean, there are, are tons and tons and tons of instances where we thought, God, we're so far in over our head, like we don't know what we're doing, and we just worked like dogs, crazy hours, just to make sure we figured it out and didn't do the right, didn't do the wrong thing. So it was scary. Now, even with all that hard work to try to, uh, you know, prove that you could do it and knew knew what you were doing, I'm sure that you didn't win every case or cause you were you were going after. Um, I I would love to know how you cope with failure. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, one of the things that's so tough about litigation, there's a couple things. Uh, one of the things that's tough is you win or lose. Uh, you probably, if you're good, you win more times than you lose. But um, you certainly have to deal with a lot of losses. Uh, and so I think a big part of it is going in with your, with your eyes wide open that, law, that losing is a possibility, um, especially with public interest litigation, um, litigating on behalf of the small guys. Um, you know, there's uh, long odds in a lot of these cases. So we partnered up with clients, normal, everyday people who are activists and advocates in their communities. Uh, and so we would be really upfront with them early on say, here's our strategy. You know, we think there's a path to victory, but a lot of it's going to depend on, um, who the judge is, 
uh, how the case plays out once we start to get all the documents and see what's going on behind the scenes. Um, the community has to rally behind you and stay behind you and support you this whole time. Or, you know, that can also have a case go sideways if the community starts to back away from the commitment. Uh, and so just being really upfront with folks from the very beginning about what it takes to be successful. Uh, and, uh, you know, we didn't do that all that well at the very beginning. It takes a couple few years and, and a little bit of wisdom and experience to really know um, how to be successful with public interest advocacy from early on. Uh, and so taking the losses and taking the lumps early on was tough. It got a little bit easier as we got into it a little bit because we could um, go into it with more with our eyes wide open. But then we also got more and more important cases and the stakes got higher and higher. So, um, you know, it also became a little bit, um, it just became really intense and, and it was a pressure cooker for, for quite a long time. So then moving forward with becoming the ED of the Access Fund, like what, what was that process and were you at a point to, to your point before where it was just becoming maybe too, in, too intense with Crag Law and you were looking for something else or were you recruited? You know, how did that process work to get you in there? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a really amazing um, experience. So um, right towards, uh, let's see, 2016-ish, um, I had decided to take a year off basically from legal practice and from uh, the nonprofit. Uh, I was burned out. Um, I felt like I had constantly put uh, my climbing interests on the side, even though I was still climbing a ton. I was like, it's just never the number one priority. Uh, and so I decided to take a year off and go climbing. Uh, and I worked for about five solid years to put a plan in place that would allow me to do that. Uh, and so in about November 2016, my wife and I fully uh, finally got to the point where I could uh, take a year off and just step out of work. Um, she's been a real estate agent for a long time, a really good one, so she also could kind of set her practice aside for a bit. Uh, and it was uh, a really interesting time because my father actually passed away uh, in May of that year, and so he had been ill for quite a while, uh, and it had been a super intense period where you know losing a parent, um, just cranking over time at work trying to get ready to step out. Uh, and then finally having the opportunity to do that. Uh, and uh, we flew straight down to Santiago, Chile, uh, landed in Santiago, got this little Airbnb. And the first thing that happened was the election in 2016. Literally, we landed in Santiago, Chile on election night 2016. Uh, and wow. the world turned upside down, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we traveled for the next year and um, climbed all over the world. It was absolutely incredible. It was one of the most amazing experiences we've had. And then came back uh, November 2017 and plugged back into work uh, and was super jazzed on it. Um, but also, you know, was just kind of like thinking, what comes next after this? Do I really want to do this for the rest of my career? Um, being that deeply engaged in climbing for a full year was just incredible. I came back so passionate about climbing and the climbing community. And so just serendipitously, you know, this job at the Access Fund opened up um, June-ish, I think, of 2017, 2018, after I got back. I've been back about six months. And, uh, you know, I was a little bit skeptical at first over whether I really wanted to pick up my life and move and, and jump into something new so quickly after the year off. But, you know, I just checked it out, and it was just an amazing fit. Love the people, love the mission, um, really love the staff. And so... Man, it's been incredible. I feel so lucky, and it's been such a great ride so far. But the last um, three or four years have been an incredible amount of instability, a little bit of loss, lots of adventure. Um, and now having moved to Boulder, I finally feel a little bit settled in here, 
for a year or so. And then all of a sudden we get to the pandemic and the world gets turned upside down again. Uh, and so I'm just, you know, doing my best to keep up really. So you, you brought up the election. So I want to poke into this a little bit. Um, I'm curious how, how the access fund toes the line of political polarization because, mm-hmm. you know, of course the, the current administration is, has pursued some initiatives that, um, aren't necessarily, uh, you know, on paper in the best interest of some of our outdoor spaces, but at the same time, you know, there, there's passionate climbers on both sides of the aisle, right. That vote either way. So yep. how, how do you, how do you handle that as an organization representing the climbing community on the whole? Yeah, well, Access Fund's a nonpartisan organization, so we don't choose sides. Um, we don't advocate for particular candidates. Um, we're not working in collaboration with the Republican or Democratic Party. Um, what we do is we advocate around issues, pu- protection of public lands, access for climbers, and outdoor recreation. <clears throat> and so, you know, what we do is, is we, we work on the issues, uh, and we work across the aisle in Washington, D.C., um, to protect places and to ensure climbing access. And so um, the situation since 2016 has been um, very partisan, just in terms of the overall tone of the discourse in our community. Uh, And it's been quite divisive, unfortunately. But we really try to um, stay focused on the issues. Uh, And and when we do that and we're effective at that, we get broad public support for not only climbing and outdoor recreation, but just the outdoor recreation economy more broadly. And so, for instance, if you look at polling um, here in the West on the relationship between outdoor recreation and economic development, for instance, in rural communities, uh, there is broad bipartisan support on both sides of the Republican and Democratic parties for protecting public lands, um, for promoting outdoor recreation and the outdoor recreation economy, and for working on conservation and stewardship. It is simply not a partisan issue. And so that's our approach is really to focus on those issues because there is so much broad public support for that. Um, and the best example, the best concrete example is, um, you know, earlier in 2019, we got the Dingle Act, the John Dingle Act passed through Congress. Um, it was a, a landmark public lands package. You know, over 2 million acres of public lands were protected. Um, and there were protections written into that bill for wilderness climbing, climbing in wilderness areas, federally protected wilderness areas for the first time in the history of the United States. Uh, and that two million acre package that had a lot of other really amazing things in it as well, passed Congress, the Senate, 92 to 8, uh, in a time and was signed by President Trump uh, in a time of incredibly divisive politics nationwide. Uh, and the reason that something like that can happen is because the issues that we work on people care so deeply about those issues in communities all across America. So, um, you know, we're really focused on continuing to build public support for conservation and public lands uh, with the climbing community. And I think that's what people want to see. That's a hopeful story coming out of sometimes a a seemingly endless uh, negative news cycle. So I'm glad to hear that. Um, You know, we've been seeing some of this stuff come out. So I'm, I'm glad that that is there are still some silver linings to the work that is being done to preserve our, our natural areas that we care about. There's a lot of great work. I mean, before the pandemic hit, we were really close to passing another landmark uh, package through Congress called the Great American Outdoors Act. Um, you know, a lot of folks have been working on the Land and Water Conservation Fund, which um, takes some revenue from offshore oil development and funneled us into local communities to buy new parks and green spaces and to fund all kinds of really cool projects. Uh, well, we were about to get uh, a bill passed through Congress that would have provided permanent dedicated funding 
$900 billion a year or $900 million a year um, to the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Uh, that was like on the verge of happening before the pandemic hit, uh, along with uh, a really important uh, bill called Restore Our Parks that uh, provides dedicated funding to the Park Service for all kinds of really important um, backlog maintenance projects. Uh, and so these are really, really important things that will do great things for our public lands. And again, they were on the verge of getting through Congress when the pandemic hit, and there's still an opportunity that we might be able to get them included in one of the next stimulus packages. So um, the bipartisan work continues. Uh, it didn't end with the Dingle Act, and we've got a lot a lot more things on the table, and we're hopeful we're going to get a lot of good things done here in the next couple of years. Yeah, I, one of the things that Jonathan and I were chatting about earlier today is, is thinking about how to um, get people engaged when we're in this crisis, even if we're coming out of it, you know, there might be potentially a second wave. People yeah. are really anxious about their own situations financially, you know, their jobs, all kinds of things, and just the existential crisis that kind of comes up with a lot of um, what's going on with the crisis. And so I, I'm wondering from your perspective, you know, how how would you recommend, what is like the number one uh, step to take if someone is, you know, experiencing all that anxiety, but still is someone who really wants to do their part and take care of their natural um, lands? Yeah, well, so one thing is to just get outside. Um, I think it's so important for people who are stressed and anxious, and it's totally understandable that people are really feeling uncertain about what the future brings and what the future holds. But man, I think it's so important for people to unplug from the news cycle, unplug from social media, um, and just go outside and spend time outside with um, the person you care the most about or your family member or best friend or whatever it is. And just go and enjoy nature somewhere. Go for a hike. Um, go for a run um, when we're when we're able to go climbing again. And um, try to ground yourself in what really matters the most. Um, I found just for me personally, it makes such a difference when I'm paying attention to the news cycle every day. I don't know what's going on around me. Everything seems like it's falling apart. And then I'll just close my computer and walk outside my back door, and my backyard looks exactly the same. Uh, and I can go for a hike in my neighborhood. Um, pick up the phone. My friends are still there. Um, and so I just think, you know, appreciate what's right in front of us on, an, on a daily basis, especially when that means the outdoors. So that's the number one thing. And then use that and bring that into your personal life and think about, okay, how can I really focus on what matters to me uh, when, I, when I open my computer again or plug back in? And how can I really stay grounded in the fact that the outdoors matter so much to me and, and it's such an important part of my life? Now, uh, let's circle it back to maybe, you know, personally for you, the question that I, I uh, shelved earlier, what, what's, mm -hmm. what's the biggest issue keeping you up at night right now? I mean, the biggest issue keeping me up at night right now, um, uh, I mean, I, I'm responsible for running the access fund, you know, and um, the, the coronavirus pandemic has presented a lot of challenges to nonprofit organizations generally. Thankfully, our community has continued to support the Access Fund strongly throughout this whole thing. So we're doing really well, and the work continues all over the country. We're focused on reopening all these climbing areas, making sure they get reopened well, that we preserve access, that we're continuing our work in Washington, D.C. on these big, important public lands initiatives. Um, but frankly, you know, what keeps me up at night is my responsibility to provide for a staff of 26 people, 27 people, um, to deliver for the climbing community day in and day out. Um, measurable impacts over time. 
uh, and that we got to keep that going uh, for the indefinite future. I mean, the access fund's about to turn 30 next year. Uh, that's a time for celebration, reflection, and to double down on you know, all the incredible work we're doing. So, you know, I just feel a really um, important personal professional responsibility to um, to deliver for the organization and deliver for our community day in and day out. So, in a time of crisis, I think that's um, that's what keeps me up at night. Well, I'm really happy to hear that that you're doing well and that the community has continued to support through this. Uh, I, I'm curious if you were involved in a nonprofit that wasn't doing well, that was uh, you know really impacted by by the current situation. Like, what what would be your plan of action for for how to yeah. kind of get through this? So, um, you know, there's uh, only a certain number of levers that nonprofits can pull in order to deal with financial crises. And so anytime a nonprofit, you know, deals with revenue shortfalls or a crisis situation, I think the executive director, CEO has to really step up uh, and make personal sacrifices before asking other people in the organization to make personal sacrifices. And so if it came down to that, you know, I'd be the first person to step up and take a pay cut before I ask my team to take a pay cut. I've done that in the past in other situations. Um, and you know, the other thing is I think you just have to be incredibly transparent and accountable with everybody on the team about what the situation is uh, and why certain decisions are getting made. So you know, I think it's a combination of um, transparency, uh, personal sacrifice, uh, and then um, showing that you're dedicated to um, having to go through the same things that everybody else on the team has to deal with. Uh, and so I hope we don't get there with the access fund uh, right now, it's looking pretty good for us, and we're really working hard as a team um, to make sure that um, we don't have to um, deal with that kind of impact. But you know, it's 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 hard. Uh, it's a little bit scary, and I just think the um, the leader has to um, has to be willing to step up and and work extra hard and make personal sacrifices so that people on the team believe that um, everybody's headed in the right direction together. Yeah, it's been interesting to see you know what. Companies and nonprofits, profits, what has been their level of transparency and empathy mm-hmm. and leadership throughout this? Um, yep. And I think that consumers and and you know just citizens overall will remember the the organizations that they work with on a consistent basis, whether it be you know regular brands or nonprofits that did the right thing during this time. Um, and you know it seems like that number one thing that um, is going to resonate and going to keep people supporting is is the um, act of empathy. And so I'm really glad to hear that that's kind of the direction you're, you guys are, are taking. I, I definitely feel that too. Um, and I mean, it's like active empathy for our community, the people who are out there locked down in their houses, hanging off their fingerboards for six weeks at a time. Like I have a ton of empathy for those folks because I'm doing the exact same thing and it's starting to drive me a little bit crazy to tell you the truth. And and I can walk out my back door. I live up here on Lee Hill. I'm like, I can walk out my back door and drop down into Sunshine Canyon or Left Hand Canyon or whatever and just go for a 10, 14 mile hike out of my back door. And it's mm. been incredible to check out these new places. But um, for people who live in cities around the country, I mean, I have so much empathy for folks who don't have that same opportunity and are, are literally hanging from the door jams for six weeks at a time. Like, that's pretty rough. Um, but the empathy for your team and your staff and the people you're, you used to go to work with every day is also so important. Um, because at a time like this, I mean, um, more than ever, your staff is really kind of your family, even if it's a remote family. Uh, and so it's just so important to try to figure out how to stay connected now that we're all working remotely and, and dealing with some, with a tough situation. 
And I think for those folks who all they do have is the the hangboards and the door jams, it's it's a matter of just reframing that as a as a challenge, right? And and it's like <laughs> this is this is going to make me a better climber instead of getting out yep. there and and going up the routes that are are maybe comfortable. It's like use use the time to to get stronger than you ever had in in a different way, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know. I think I saw some some post on it or something. It's like. You know, when you get to go climbing again, you're going to have zero endurance. You're not going to be able to hold on for more than like a couple minutes at a time. But that's okay. Like the endurance comes back. The most important thing is you'll be strong yeah. uh, from hanging off your hangboard. So I thought that was a pretty a pretty good empathetic message out to the climbing community. Like you'll get back out there eventually. And yeah, you know, the, the 20, 30 meter routes are going to hurt pretty bad, but you'll probably be able to boulder all right. <laughs> I love that. I think someone sent me a, a meme or a gif yesterday about um, – he, he had like a book that a picture of a book cover and it was like how to climb five four and he's like this is the book i'm reading right now because this is the level that i'll be at when we go back <laughs> i know but the flip side right is when we go back outside we're all going to be so amazingly psyched and stoked just to be out in real rock it's not really going to matter how hard you climb i mean it doesn't really matter normally anyway but we're just all going to be so incredibly stoked just to be at the crowd with our friends to be able to climb on natural rock um just to be able to visit those places that we love so much um, it's really not going to matter for a while, like how how strong you're feeling or what kind of condition you're in. It's just going to be so super cool to be outside. Yeah. Well, you you hit the word a couple times just in that last sentence, and so I, I we end every episode actually asking, uh, "What does Stoke mean to you?" But I also want to add another piece to this and ask, "What is what does the pursuit of Stoke mean to you?" Man, well, Stoke for me is just that intangible thing where you obsess over something uh, in bed waiting to go to sleep at night. Maybe it's the guidebook that's on your um, on your shelf next to your bed or things that you dream about during over the course of the day. Like what is that what is that mission, um, that, that, that outdoor mission, right? The trip, um, the route, uh, the, the river run. What is it that just makes you so psyched that, that you want to organize your whole life around getting that, that mission done? That for me is Stoke, um, and that carries me through from one adventure to the other. Um, and you know, for me, the re- most rewarding things are those things that I have to work the hardest for over a longest period of time. Uh, and one of the things you know that that I've taken away from everything that I've done for the last 20, 30 years is that if you set yourself a goal that is perhaps unattainable, but is um, just inspires you to work hard towards it every day, that's one of the keys to happiness over the long term. Love that. Well, yeah, I was just letting that, letting that resonate yeah. right there for a second. Damn, that was, that was good. <laughs> um, well, thanks so much, Chris. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. And for the folks that are listening that can, um, so they can donate to the Access Fund to keep supporting. Is that right? Absolutely. We would love that. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to plug it. Um, accessfund.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. And uh, just so deeply appreciate the community support for what we do. It's such a worthy organization and cause and love everything that you, that you stand for and that you're working on. So thank you for that from on behalf of the entire climbing community. Absolutely. And thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity. Really hope you enjoyed that episode. Before you go, it would mean the world to us if you dropped a review of the podcast wherever you're listening. And also, if you're not subscribed yet, definitely hit that button so you can tune in each week and not miss an episode. But also, don't miss out on the conversations happening inside our member Facebook group. Just search The Stokecast Podcast on Facebook and join up. Or reach out to say hi on socials at eHalls, at Jonathan Ronzio, or at The Stokecast. Thanks again, and stay stoked.